from the book of Luke, chapter 8, 22 through 24. One day he and his disciples got into a boat, and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased and there was calm. He said to them, Where's your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, Who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. The word of the Lord. Kids are invited to Kids Church and Library. Kelly is teaching today. <laughs> it is well with my soul is part of the challenge of today's reading as it's part of the theme setting for us is to is to be amidst the storms, to be amidst tossed about by the sea. And to be able to say it is well with my soul is perhaps one of the more ultimate acts of faith. And so a uh, short version of the sermon, which wasn't really a sermon, it wasn't really in my mind until I thought it as we were singing the song, is that faith has this ability for us to be able to say it is well when the evidence suggests the contrary. The question at the end from Jesus is asked the disciples, is where is your faith? Jesus is on the boat with us, and so as we reach the storms of life, where is your faith? It is well, it is well is sometimes the ultimate act of expressing our faith in the midst of troubles and trials. But this is our sixth sermon in the Gospel of Luke as we sort of look through in this first half sort of Jesus's revelatory power. Now next week we have uh, the transfiguration scene, which is sort of this ultimate appearance of Jesus's power in this first half of the gospel is that Jesus is in some sense revealed in his glory at that moment and so this is our last one before or after the transfiguration scene we'll go and sort of journey towards the cross with Jesus in the gospel of Luke after the confession of faith to Jesus it says resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem after the disciples answer the question who is this then things obey the the winds and seas obey him. After they get the answer to that question, Jesus tells them, great, now we go to where I die. It's less climactic than they hope, and so there are trials and trials along the way. But that's sort of where we are right now. We've been looking at Jesus' first in Luke's gospel, his announcement of his kingdom and the shape and parameters of what it is and for. And then we looked at David gave a sermon about confronting demons and how Jesus sort of heals people with demons. The, the third sermon was on table fellowship, that Jesus seems to not have these boundaries around what's pure and right, but can go as the Holy One and transform those places and eat with sinners, sinners like us. Uh, the fourth sermon was the Sabbath healing, which Jesus sort of heals the crippled person by asking them to stretch out their hand. And last week, the miraculous thing that Jesus did and showed his power was he forgave sins. This week, he calms the storm and the tempest. And, and one of the things I like about this sort of passage is it shows both aspects of Jesus' divinity. I think it was um, 
Bede in like the 700s that pointed this out, is that he sleeps on the boat, therefore he is human, and he controls the winds and the seas, therefore he is God. That Jesus is being fully human and fully divine is captured in the scene very well as one who can sleep, one who sleeps, and one who is divine and controlling the winds and the seas. And so this is one of those scenes that shows up in the other uh, three synoptic Gospels, Matthew and, and Mark. And one of the things we've been trying to do, as best as I can, stick with the material we have at hand. And so for some of you, things might be coming into your mind from other Gospels to sort of fill and flesh out this scene. But one of the things we try to do when we walk with a Gospel like Luke is to sort of use the material that, that's been given to us. So Jesus in another Gospel will ask, why do you have little faith? Which is not what he asks in this gospel. Um, there's uh, the crowds ask a different question rather than the disciples at the end of the other one. And so there's sort of a different way of telling the story that Luke has. And it's short, but it's powerful. And it begins with those great days. It, I mean, Luke has, has got this interesting thing of one day Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to the other side of the lake, which is a great way of telling the story, but I would start it with one day Jesus stilled a storm. I'll tell you the story about that day. The, the, the Greek at the beginning is just so casual. One day Jesus said, let's go on a boating trip. Um, and it's important to remember as we sort of go through this story, Jesus is, is called professional fisherman. These are not just like, Matt, take me out on a boat that's over there. That would end horribly, storm or no storm. Um, Jesus has called and his disciples are people who know the waters well in this region. They're people who fish and go out. And so he and his, his disciples get in a boat and they go out to the other side of the lake. And what, what happens in the next the scenes in Luke after this is Jesus, right when he gets to the other side of the lake, he uh, casts out a demon. This is the, the scene you might be familiar with where he casts these demons into the herd of pigs. Um, and then they tell him to get out of town, which seems like an appropriate response to something as miraculous like that. Um, that would be terrifying if you think about it. Um, uh, and then he um, heals somebody from death. And so what happens, if you pair these scenes together, what Luke is doing is showing that Jesus is one who has this ultimate power in controlling nature. And then in the next scenes, he sort of does, in short, what we've been looking at. He heals somebody who's sick. He heals somebody who's died. He uh, casts out demons. Sort of what we've been doing is that that bleeds right out of the scene. So much so that, that some commentators say that this is just a busy day in the life of Jesus. From when he leaves and when he comes back, Luke is telling us one condensed story of what Jesus has done and what he has gone out to do. But before we, we really dive into the text, I, I just want us to think about seas and water a little bit. Now, did any of us grow up at the coast? I think most of us grew up in an in inland place, right? So, yeah, Jonathan, you grew up everywhere, though. <laughs> uh, that water, for me, in the Midwest of Chicago, is generally fun or cold, and sometimes both. Um, that you go to the water to sort of go out and have fun. You have the safety of little lakes. You have rivers that aren't too strong, generally, or you don't swim in the ones that are. And so water is generally a place of recreation in my mind. It's easy to go out and just have fun at the beach. Pack up a cooler, let's go. 
And so water has this way in which most of us have this kind relationship to water. Most of us, our relationship to almost all of nature, that, hey, we got 10 inches of snow, great time to go ski, is unique in the history of the world. 10 inches of snow uh, 200 years ago meant, well, I hope we have enough wood and don't die. Um, we drive by wild animals, look at that bear. Uh, Pre-car, okay, everybody stay still, there's a bear. Um, and you would have your own ways of relating. And what I'm trying to say is that we have a very tame way of looking at the natural world. The natural world to us is a safe place that's almost like a step outside our front door. It's just tame and kind to be in. So much so that when it's too hot, we can put on air conditioning, and too cold, we can just turn on heat. This is, we talk about this sort of human manipulation to the Bible with darkness. Dark is scary in the ancient world. For us, it's like, just turn on a light, man. Buy a better flashlight. They make headlamps. Um, and so when we see that they're out at the sea, we have to put ourselves in this first century frame. Because the sea is not a tame spot to be. Now, many people have asked, do I golf? And I say, no, I don't golf, but I can hit the white ball. Um, when I lived in Oregon, I tried to learn to surf. So can I surf? I own the stuff too. Not, not sure I qualify what I do as surfing. Um, but one of the things I learned from being on the Pacific Ocean is it, it, paying attention means something very different. It's terrifying. Um, one day, as I was learning, I went out uh, further because I didn't, I like can surf five waves in a day or ten, I don't know. So I go out far enough and just sort of enjoy the calm of the lake past where they're breaking. So I was watching my friends, and another guy is coming up and he points behind me, points at me. I think, it was instead pointing behind me, and I had not gone out far enough. There was a wave that came up from behind me, and flipped and tumbled me and threw me, and uh, you know, this happens enough when you're a bad surfer, the idea that I felt like I almost died isn't true, because I was like, okay, you got beat very badly again by the sea. So here I fly fish, which is much safer. <laughs> Um, although the river can do wild things as well. But, but the thing with that power of the ocean, and this was something, I mean, maybe you guys realized this before I did, which was my mid-20s, is very, very powerful and very, very terrifying. Even in a boat, even with a surfboard, even when you think you're safe, the sea has this ability to transform and to do very powerful things that can put almost everything to shame. So Jesus and his disciples decide to go out on a boat one day, out on the sea. It's not just a simple thing. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level, and it's mainly very calm. And Shelly's out. Shelly, can you hear me? Did, did you see the Sea of Galilee? Was it very still? Yes. The Sea of, the sea of Galilee is very still water normally. But what happens, being 600 feet below sea level, is these insane storms can sort of come down in a moment's instance and sort of shake everything. And so you go out expecting a nice day. They had now uh, Doppler radar systems. And in a moment, this sea can transform into a terrible place. Now, one of the things about the ancient Israelites 
because the sea is this place of almost a third power. In, in the ancient Israelites sort of believed in this third tier, three-tiered universe, if you want to think about it this way, is that they have the heavens, they have the earth, and they have the under the earth, and the sea almost belonged to the under the earth or was the top of the under the earth. And so the sea was a wild place. From the creation account, it says that God uh, hovered over the water, the watery chaos, and called order out of it. So the ancient Israelites see God as more powerful than the chaos of the waters, but that doesn't prevent them from seeing the waters as a highly dangerous place. If you read the Psalms, the book of Jonah, other places that uh, what, what um, Brian read to us from Job is that the seas are wild and dangerous. Now, there are seafaring people in the ancient world. The Jews are not one of them for the most part. They're pretty, they're, they're what pirates would call land robbers. Right? Um, they, they don't go out on the sea as much because of this. And, and you'll read about the Leviathan and other animals, the behemoth in the Old Testament, that this place of these massive beasts that can crush us. The sea almost has a demonic element to it. And in this story, I think that's what we're called to see, is that this isn't just like a random weather system came but there was a demonic sort of attack that happened at this moment. One of the evidences for that is Jesus rebukes the storm. And it's the same word that he used for rebuking a demon in chapter 4. That Jesus rebukes the storm. Now, you don't rebuke inanimate things very often. You rebuke animate things. That there's a sense in which there's a power at work in these storms and in the seas and the trials. And so water for them isn't just recreation. It's this place of other powers, danger. And in the book of Revelation, uh, bad news for surfers, but great news for the rest of us, says that the sea is no more in chapter 21, which I don't think means there won't be an ocean. I think it means that that, that which we see is captured to this power, that, that its destructiveness will be gone. Waters won't terrify us anymore. And if you're a person who survives around flood cycles or rivers and stuff like this, waters are your life-giving, but also the greatest source of danger in the world. Not too much famine, too much flood. It's a great challenge. And so the disciples go out on the boat to go to the other side. And as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake, so the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. One of these storms appears out of nowhere and comes down on the lake. And the boat being swamped is the boat is taking on water. Now, I don't know a lot about boating at all, but I know when your boat takes on water, that's a bad thing because it's only a matter of time before the boat is in the water, and then the boat sinks in the water. So when your boat begins to fill with water, it's not distinguishable from the lake anymore. So the disciples, again, experienced fishermen, know that this is big trouble. And so they are panicked and trying to save themselves. And the disciples went and woke Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. It's the NIV, but the, the more correct phrasing of this is, Master, Master, we're dying. We're perishing. We will be no more. 
Yet an expert fisherman would know what these storms were like in the sense of like, this is not waking up Jesus to save them, I think, in some ways. It's waking up Jesus to say, well, you might as well say goodbye to one you love as well. Um, you don't let your friend die in the storm, right? You wake him up and say goodbye, too. Um, you, you, they don't seem to be just waking him up so that he can do something for them. They're waking him up to let him know what's come upon them. Now, one of the more interesting parts about this, this story is that the disciples have not received really anything from Jesus yet except for a call to follow him. They've seen what Jesus can do in healing. They've seen what Jesus can do in forgiving sins. They've seen what Jesus can do with his power in setting captives free. They've seen that Jesus has this ability about him that nobody else they've known has. But they themselves have not received the benefit of Jesus the same way that others have. They're, in some sense, the insiders. They're going along with this, but they haven't quite received from it. One of the things that I want to say and talk about is that the church is the boat. And so when you're reading uh, scripture generally, um, particularly as a in the great tradition of the church, whenever a bunch of people get on a boat, it becomes a metaphor for either the people of Israel or the church, whether it be Jonah, uh, uh, Noah, um, the disciples on this boat, it becomes a metaphor for the church. And that's one of the challenges with this sermon, and I even started with an example of it, but I think it's true, too, is that this is how we conquer the storms of our own lives. Powerful message. It's a good message. It's often the only one we'll hear about this passage. But there's a sense in which this is a parable or a story for the church to understand what it means to be light tossed about on the seas and waves of the world. Most of the time we take these stories and reduce, reduce them down to their individualistic level. Matt, you're having a hard time at work. You're struggling with this. You've been left alone. Whatever. And God will be with you in the storms of life. Certainly true. But I think this passage is about what does it mean to belong to a people? <clears throat> called on to a boat with Jesus and tossed about in the waves and storms of the world. At the end of the section of scripture, Jesus actually sends out his disciples to practice what he has been showing them. This is an example of the church on mission existing in the world, knowing that it is not at home and it is thrown about and tossed about on the waves and seas of what happens. This is the picture of a church that is, that is calling out to Jesus in the midst of its dying. What happens is Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind and the raging waters, the storm subsided, and all was calm. There's this knowing that we have, and this is that it is well song that I thought as well, is that we know one who can rebuke the storm. We know one who can cast out the powers. We know one who isn't as bound in the world as we are. And not only that, he travels with us, is on the boat with us. And so what he does for demons, he does for these realms of power. And what happens in the words of St. Jerome is that creation at this moment recognizes its creator. Jesus rebukes the storm and it is calm again. 
He turns to the disciples and asks, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I think is a great question for the church today. We have our trials and struggles that are present and that are coming. And we will rush around telling God, we're about to die. The question back often is, where is your faith? There's a passage in the New Testament that says that that God calls out the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now, one of my professors in seminary was uh, had a lot of hope and counseling and therapy, and people would ask him, you know, if we can do all this spiritual direction, counseling, therapy, help people progress on their own, um, isn't this a great thing? And he said to them often, and he was a brilliant therapist himself, that the gates of hell will prevail against most of the things in the world. So the reason you should be nice to your MDIP counterparts, me, is because they're going to work for the place that the gates of hell won't conquer. There's a great C.S. Lewis essay where at the end he says that, you know, we think about culture as immoral, we think about countries as immoral, we think about languages and all our great works as immoral. But he says, those are all mortal things. What's immortal is the people who are called out by Jesus in the world. And so he says in that story that he's talking, or in that sermon, actually, he says that your neighbor is actually the immortal thing near you. And they'll either be something so marvelous you might be tempted to worship it in the end, or something so terrifying that you would run away in terror. But that, perhaps, is the closest thing you'll have to something that is mortal. So does the church, in this sense, that is not at trouble with this moment in the world. We can call to the one who will rescue us, but also he asks us that this will be fun. And in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? Commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. Who is this is the question they're going to be asked when we pick up in Luke next week. It brings us to the transfiguration of themselves. Of brings them to the transfiguration, and it's the question asked of them. Who do they say that Jesus is? And they're going to have to give an answer to that question. But I think it's important for us to think with the two ideas of where is our faith and who is this? Who is this? Now, there's, we'll end with these two words, not these two words, two different sets of two words with definitions. Uh, the church triumphant. This is what many people think of the church, that the church is triumphant as it belongs to God. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the definition is members of the church who have died and are regarded as enjoying eternal happiness through union with God. So, not the church as it lives in the world today, but the church as it lives in its union with God after death. The second set of words, two words, is the church militant. This is the Christian church on earth, regarded as engaged in a constant warfare against its enemies, the powers of evil, distinguished from the church triumphant. 
If we read this story as if the disciples on the boat are us, then this is a parable of what the church is going to be in the world. It is the church militant that we are to turn to. You might think, when the storm calms, we live in the church triumphant. But that is something that we await with God. In the world, we have the church militant and is engaged in constant warfare against its enemies and the powers of evil. This is the deep struggle of the church today, and one that I think will only get heightened for us. And it's easy, as people talk this way in the church, it's um, easy to think about U.S. presidential politics and the state of our country and this, that, and the other. But what I think what we see going on with the technocratic, um, medical, industrial, military, industrial, all those sort of isms and complexes that make up our world is where the church is going to have to resist the urge to raise flags. And not just countries, other things. Resist the urge to be slave to the same things that everybody else is being drawn into. To turn off social media no matter how much it's demanded of you. To not jump when somebody else says jump. There's a great example of the church militant in, in this um, French village in the beachy region of France, which was controlled by the Nazis. And, and they came to the town, and it was a Protestant woman at this church. And they told her to ring the bell at noon every day for the Nazis, and she refused to ring the bell. She finally, they got to her, and they said, what are you doing? And she said, the bell belongs to God. It doesn't ring for anybody else. It's in those places we find the church militant. It's one of the reasons why everybody, I don't know, it's normally pastors that cringe when I tell them our church's name is Defiance. And I'm like, can you not think of the church militant? Can you not think of the ways in which the church today is offered a way to be captive to so many things? The redefinition of our humanity, the redefinition of our sexuality, the redefinition of what it means to be human, the redefinition of what it means to be connected, what it means to be a friend. They asked me, I quit accept on Facebook. The redefinition of what it means to belong. The redefinition of what makes up a family. But the church, the church militant in all times, has been called to resist in its own ways. And so the church is thrown about by the seas of the world as it goes on its way. The church is swamped by the waters. The church can pray out, it feels like we're dying. And yet the one who is with us is the maker of things, cease and be still. And what he says when he awakens is, where is your faith? Because within this place, within these churches in the valley, that's his physical church. Is a place that the gates of hell will prevail, and no matter what is thrown at it, we reside and live with one who rebukes it all. <clears throat> who is this one? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. It is the revealed Son of God, come to us to set us free. Let us pray. God, in you we see power. The power to still the storms of our lives. 
power to cast out demons, power to heal and repair that which is broken, power to make fellowship where it is said that there is no way for it. power to cast out demons. God, as we seek you in your power, as your disciples here in this dorm, may us look to you who can save home. Psalmist says, God, give sleep to those who we love. May we be people who can rest in you. And that rushing about doesn't save us. That our hope does not reside in other things. It is our hope that resides in you. Be with us now and be with us always as we make up your church here on earth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to get the lyrics up in the song.